IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums and we hash out trends. In this episode we review new albums by the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Machine Gun Kelly. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. I can't wait to see him in G.I. Jane 2, Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? Yeah, I mean, we typically complain like during this part of the uh, episode where we just missed the window of opportunity for some piece of prime banter. But I think this week I could not be more happy that like we're recording on a Thursday. Five days have passed, and like, we are under no obligation to mention the slap beyond... You know, it taking me this long to bring up Wise Alopecia, which is a future IndieCast Hall of Famer and my favorite album of 2008. Wow. That's a that's a callback to, is that the only album named Alopecia? I don't think there's a, another album that referenced Alopecia no. ever. That That's something for the IndieCast interns out there to uh, do a quick uh, fact check on. Um yeah, yeah, it, it was fascinating to see all the takes yeah. unfold this week about the slap. I think that it is literally impossible to have a good take on the slap beyond that was like a really crazy thing that happened. Yeah. But you know, the people who are trying to connect it to Donald Trump, the Ukraine, or the Ukraine, you know, just or saying that you know Will Smith could have killed Chris Rock <laughs> if Chris Rock was Betty White. Uh, that was an actual take. I think it's amazing that this whole thing, it just overshadowed everything else about the Oscars. Like, I think as of now, people still, like if you said Coda, they wouldn't think of the film. They would think, oh, that's the worst Led Zeppelin album. You know, like that's what that's <laughs> most known as. Um, I just had to do a callback to the to uh, the G.I. Jane joke because, you know, Chris Rock is this brilliant comedian. Is that going to be his most famous joke now? Like the, the G.I. Jane 2 joke? Because that's maybe the worst joke he's ever done in his career. Yeah, I mean, I think the Oscars just brings out like the worst in anyone who takes the stage. Not that like I'm overly familiar with like Billy Crystal's uh, comedic exploits, but um, I don't know, maybe grand opening, grand closing will continue to uh, resonate. Maybe No Sex in the Champagne Room will have like a second life, but uh, yeah, he's not on tour right now, right? Yeah, he just started the tour, and he obviously timed this. I don't know if he was thinking, like, oh, I'm going to be on the Oscars, and there will be a good springboard for me into my tour. Yeah. He obviously didn't know that this whole thing was going to happen. Um, but he doesn't – I read a story that he did a show on uh, Wednesday in Boston. I think that was the start of his tour, and he doesn't really talk about Will Smith at all. <laughs> I think he acknowledges he acknowledged it at the beginning, but he already had, obviously, his show worked out. Right. In advance, so no Will Smith material. Um, I think it's amazing too that the slap has also overshadowed the Grammys. Like, do you remember that the Grammys are this weekend? I, I, I usually don't pay a lot of attention beyond like you know the occasional who do we think's going to win the Grammys? Who's actually going to win the Grammys? As if it's like there's like a good like a goofus and gallant type outcome binary going on here but like yeah apparently it is happening i just always know that there's like a part in march where there's like a whole bunch of shit that i don't care about and you know i'm glad they give them back to back you know i was interviewed this week by the wall street journal about the rock categories at the grammys and the thesis of the piece was talking about like why do the grammys get rock music so wrong <laughs> yeah <And> tell me <laughs> my my 
Well, my, I mean, my uh, reply to that was that they get everything wrong. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if rock music is any more worse than any other category. I mean, the Grammys, after all, did give a Grammy to Macklemore over Kendrick Lamar. You know, like, mm-hmm. it's not like they're getting hip hop right either. Or, I, I mean, I don't know if there's any genre that the Grammys just nail every year where people are just like, oh, yeah, Best they got new that artist. right. I mean, their, their, their track record in that is sterling. <laughs> exactly. Sort of like being glass on- animals, baby. That that up and coming underdog, man. They 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 might surprise you in the best new artist category. I feel like for a while, maybe this isn't true anymore, but there was this thing with the best new artist that it was like being on the cover of Madden Football that like you would get injured <laughs> immediately if you were on the cover of Madden Football. Christopher Cross was like the main example being used for that, or like uh like there, who else was there? It was like the put your records on person. Whoever the, I cannot remember that person's name. I mean, like I Millie Vanilli like was Millie Vanilli was best new artist. Which uh, okay, outside of the lip syncing uh, scandal, I mean, made sense. I think in the moment, yeah, I mean, that, they were that huge. was going to happen in any way. Um, but I don't know. The fact that we can't remember a lot of best new artist winners is maybe uh, enough of an indictment. I mean, there's been some big ones. I mean, like you know, Bonnie Vare won on his second record. He won for $22 a million in 2016. No, it was uh, Bonnie Vare, Bonnie Vare oh. he won for. <laughs> okay. I think. And that was, because that was his big breakout year. That's when he got right. parodied by Justin Timberlake on SNL. Oh, wow. Um, I feel yeah, like we're... Bon- Justin Burton needs to slap the shit out of the dude. <laughs> I feel like we're stalling here because we don't want to talk about the tragic news that happened this week. Yeah. Which is uh, the death of Taylor Hawkins of the Foo Fighters that happened on Friday. And... Uh, there's still news coming out about this. There's been an investigation into his death. I don't think there's been an official proclamation yet, but there's been reports that there were multiple substances in the system yeah. when he died. Uh, and you know, just to die in a hotel room while on tour, I mean, that's a sad way to go for anybody. And of course, mm-hmm. there was a previous incident with Taylor Hawkins back in 2001 where he overdosed. And there was actually like a brief window of time where they thought he died from oh, that. And he, I did not know that. Yeah, he was in a coma for a long time, and then he came Jesus. out, and it appeared that he had twenty years of sobriety. And obviously, the Foo Fighters have done great in that period of time. Um, yeah. And but now uh, this has happened, and I, I don't know what can you say. I mean, it's such a sad story. Yeah, I mean. It's it's one of those situations which is just like incredibly sad and also balanced by the fact that every single person who had anything to say about Taylor Hawkins like had the most positive things imaginable to say. Like I cannot think of the last time someone was like so consensusly beloved. And I think that it, it it's just it was really awesome like in his life to see hit like a person who could not be better suited for the job that he actually had, which is to be like the drummer in the rock and roll ambassador band you know yeah like you watch him play and it's like yeah this is why rock and roll is fun yeah and he was also he could be a front man too like there was this moment in each show that he would come out and he would sing there's actually a clip of the last Foo Fighters show ever uh, or at least with Taylor Hawkins where he steps out and he sings Somebody to Love by Queen and uh, oh, wow. he's totally being a front man, you know, and he could slip into that role and, and do it really well. And as you were saying, I mean, he, he's just like this blonde haired dude, very effervescent, happy go lucky, just seemed like the prototypical rock drummer in a lot of ways. And, you know, the, the thing I've been thinking about in the aftermath of, of his passing, 
along with all of just this, again, the sadness of, and the tragedy of it is, you know, I, I can't help but wonder like what the future of the Foo Fighters is, because yeah. this is a band that seems set up to be the next Rolling Stones, like the band that is just going to play right. stadiums forever. Like I, it just seemed like for like at least the next 20 years that they would have been able to do that easily just based on their track record. Cause I feel like the stones at this point, they've, they've reached that status where even if you don't like the stones, like people go see them. Cause it's like, they're playing in a stadium. I want to be in a stadium for a rock show. They're sort of like the yeah. default rock band for a, a more casual audience of concert goers. It just <laughs> seemed like Foo Fighters were going to be that kind of band. And then this happens. And, you know, on one hand, I think people look at Foo Fighters as Dave Grohl and a supporting cast. But right. on the other hand, Taylor Hawkins, clearly the most recognizable member after Dave Grohl. I guess Pat Smear would be number three on that hierarchy. Yeah. And uh, uh, Nate, well, I don't know. Nate Mandel is as a Sunny Day real estate fan. I gotta say, like he, the guy, yeah, but he, like like an icon of playing his bass up at his neck. Yeah, he'd be number four. I'm just saying consensus. Pat Smear was in Nirvana too. You know, I just think he's 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 a little more recognizable. Um, I mean, I, I was thinking about that because I had a conversation with a friend like the day after the news broke that Taylor Hawkins uh, died, and, and my friend was saying that there's no way that they continue. And I was saying, like, oh wow, like, well, there's such a valuable brand as a touring act that it's hard for me to imagine them not continuing. But on the other hand, I also can't see Dave Grohl hiring another drummer, Chad Smith. Well, he's already in a band, you know. I, I mean, I think Dave. I mean, the only scenario that makes sense is that if Dave Grohl just becomes like a singing drummer. Like he's oh, wow. like he becomes the next drummer. That makes sense to me for them continuing, but I don't know. Like, do you think that they are still going to be a band after this? I think they'll still be a band. It'll take a while. Like, I mean, if, I don't know. Maybe maybe they'll patch things up from with William Goldsmith, uh, and he'll stop being mad online about everything. But I doubt that. I, that I'm ship sure has sailed. Like, yeah, many <laughs> know, many years right? ago. Yeah, it'll be like Josh Freeze or John Theodore, like one of those guys who you just like plug in as you know like a rock band drummer i think it'll take a while but i i like what what, i just cannot imagine it uh not happening and it also i think kind of give you know foo fighters music like uh, at least the shows an emotional poignance that i think people had kind of criticized them for like not having for a while you know it's like oh foo fighters they're just kind of like a brand but you know i think this kind of brings it back to the fact that hey these are actual people and, you know, they're putting their heart into it. And I think it's just, oh, it, it's a different sort of heart than people are, like, used to, at least in the current day, you know. No one's like, Dave Grohl, run me over with a truck or whatever. Well, to segue from that very sad story, there's no real clean way to get away from nope. the Taylor Hawkins story. But I, I did want to talk to you about the discourse around... I guess the buzziest young indie band of the year. I mean, can we call them? Oh that? yeah, they, they definitely seem to be that. We're talking about Wet Leg. This, we are. This is a duo from England. They're putting out their self-titled debut album next week, and I guess we'll talk about it next week. Although next week is pretty loaded. I mean, we've got Father John Misty and Jack White already on tap, Ooh. but it, we'll get wet. We got to get Wet Leg in there too because this is again a very discussed record. Um, so we'll talk about the music next week, but I wanted to talk about the conversation around this band because there were two profiles 
of Wet Leg published this week, one by the New York Times and the other by Rolling Stone, both very glowing, both very positive. But I, I had to laugh at the headlines of these stories because they're structured <laughs> in a very similar way. So like the New York Times, their headline is, they blew up fast, period. They know it's weird. And then the Rolling Stone headline is, they, they call them the buzziest band of the year, period. They're just as surprised as you are. You know, very similar structure there where they're hyping the band, but there's also this baked in, I don't want to say skepticism, but an acknowledgement that there might be skepticism that this band has risen so fast. Because they basically started putting out music in 2020. They had that viral hit, Chase Lounge. That was 2021, wasn't it? Was it 2021? Okay. Did they start... Did they start in 2021? They, probably, they may have like started in 2020, but I remember that song kind of blowing up last year. Um, and yeah, because that was the year of Jimothy. So you couldn't have been the buzziest band in 2021. <laughs> right. Jimothy took the crown in 2021. Now it's Wet Leg. Yeah. Um, but they're already a really popular band. I know here in Minneapolis, they recently played a headlining show at First Avenue, which is yeah. where a lot of the more established indie acts tour like that's where lucy dacus headlines you know in town so wet leg is already at that level as a touring act even though they haven't even put out their debut album yet so naturally this inspired some industry plant talk (laughs) online the favorite music conspiracy of those who are doubtful of really hyped acts what's your take on this i mean again we'll talk more about their music next week Really, we're just interested in the hashing out of the trend. And, well, yeah, well, we'll talk about the trends first, and then we'll review the record next yes. week. But Because, um, I mean, like in the New York Times story, there's this paragraph where I think it says something like, you know, they uh, they got signed based on four songs on a private SoundCloud, and they got management even though, you know, they hadn't played live yet. You know, it seemed like mm. people were zeroing in on them very, very early on, and they had yeah. this support network that has kind of helped propel them forward. Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's so funny because people like to think that they kind of know how the music industry works because there has been like a lot more transparency about like how labels get down and like there's a lot fewer qualms about selling out or whatever. But, you know, I, I just think of like that Twitter prompt, like McDonald's Sprite would kill a peasant child from the 1600s. And, I think what we're seeing here is the opposite, uh, where it's like classic 90s UK buzz band hype is just completely blowing the minds of people in 2020. I mean, like, if this were like 1994, you would see like Wet Leg on the cover of NME as if they were like suede or whatever, like, and they'd be headlining Glastonbury. I mean, like, this is what labels do. They sign a band, like, they sign a band if they think the demo like has some potential, Wet Light clearly did, and they're working them pretty hard. Uh, this is why you get a manager. Um, I like. I don't know if it's like, if you call them like an industry plant any more than like any band on any major label is an industry plant. Yeah, I I mean, I, I understand the cynicism a little bit. I, I've been in the business, as they say, for about 20 <laughs> years. And I'm still sometimes dumbfounded when I see certain bands get that kind of hype. And I'm I, I'm like, why did they get chosen? Like, who, like, is there, is there like a shadowy cabal in a back room that decided that this was going to be the band that, they, that everyone was going to care about? I mean, I understand those feelings, 
In the case of wet leg, though, I think it's pretty obvious, like why labels and management people latched onto this band. They make yeah pretty catchy music. The lyrics are uh, funny and sometimes naughty. Uh, the band members are photogenic. You know, there's a lot of aspects of this band where I think if you were to design a buzz band for 2022 in a lab, it would look yeah. a lot like wet leg. You know, yeah. they bring a lot of things together that. I think is going to appeal to listeners and especially the music press. You know, the, yeah. this, this is like catnip, I think, to music journalists, like a band like this. So and we'll talk about the music next week, but I think just looking at them on paper, they make sense as a buzz band. Yeah. Is it inventing a guy? I mean, because I mean, like, this is no different to me than, like, say, Franz Ferdinand you know, in 2003 or 2004 or something like that. I mean, like, it's, I, I do agree that it's it's definitely some inventing some guy where, like, you know, Rolling Stone, New York Times, like, the biggest publications, uh, some of, the, like, the biggest, like, most renowned publications in the world are, like, asking, like, who are these, like, haters uh, who are against wet legs ascendance? It's, you know, it's, like, some, it's, again, like, oh, maybe a couple people online are, like, oh, I don't know about this wet leg band. Something's up at Domino Records, you know? Yeah, I mean, it... The conversation around the band, it reminds me a little bit of like when The Strokes came out, because I think The yeah. Strokes had a similar thing. Very photogenic band, very catchy <laughs> songs. They were a band out of New York, and after 9-11, there was going to be a lot of goodwill for nostalgia for the old New York. I mean, they just had really yeah. good timing. And I think whether you like the band or not, it makes sense from an industry perspective, like why this band would be embraced at that particular moment in time. Like it, that was the strokes moment in 2001. And yeah. I think with wet leg, even if you listen to the record and you're like, ah, I don't feel this. I don't think you can just say, Oh, they have rich parents or, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like all of this sort of industry plant type conversations that go on. I mean, I, I will say that I don't think it's possible to take a band that doesn't have something and just yeah. ram it through and make people like it. I mean, yeah, because if it, if you could, then it would happen way more often. Exactly. I mean, there has to be something about it that connects with people, uh, and it doesn't matter how much hype you have behind it. it, it yeah. You know, how many New York Times profiles have there been of artists that just get laughed at online? You know, like yeah. <laughs> I mean, using the Jimothy as the ultimate example of that. You know, just because you get a profile at Rolling Stone or New York Times doesn't mean that everyone's just a sheep and they're just going to, like, love it just because of the press coverage. There has yeah. to be something else there. And I have to say, like, I think Wet Leg, just from – because I saw, I saw some people tweet about it. I actually tweeted about this briefly. I kind of talked about the music conspiracy aspect <laughs> of this and how, you know – this is the kind of thing that makes people believe in music conspiracies. And I deleted it after about 10 minutes because I was like, I don't want to have this conversation online. Because yeah. like, it wasn't like I was accusing Wet Leg of anything. It was just like I wanted to have this conversation. Just ask a question. Just ask, that's why, you know, I don't know if you're like this, but there's certain things that I would rather talk about on a podcast than on Twitter. It's just easier yeah. on, like in our safe space here on IndieCast. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's, it's, it's not a safe space. Steve, I'm going to bring a, a therapeutic term. We are in a brave space right now. Oh, that's true. That is true. Well, let's get to our mailbag segment. And uh, thank you all again for writing us. We get lots of letters every week. That reminds me, we should do a mailbag episode pretty soon because yeah. the emails are really stacking up. Not next up. week. 
Not next Not week. Not next week, though. No, we have some stacked weeks for releases uh, coming yeah. up ahead. Uh, but thank you all again for writing us. And keep those emails coming in. Uh, you can reach us at IndieCastMailbag at gmail.com. I really like today's question. Yes. I thought it was a good one. Uh, do you want to read this? Yeah. Um, so this one comes from Ben in Philadelphia. Yeah, what's up? Uh the, this guy asks about the first album that disappointed you. So Ben has a question inspired by Steve's recently published journey through the Red Hot Chili Peppers discography. In that piece, Steve ranks Stadium Arcadium at the bottom of the pile, which I agree with. In fact, I often describe that album as the first album that ever disappointed me when it comes up in conversation. I was in eighth grade at the time of its release, and though I was actually not that much into the band, I really wanted to be because my friends were fans and liking them made me feel cool. I distinctly recall listening to the album by myself for the first time in my room after the first few of its 28 songs, thinking, huh, that isn't that good. I'm pretty sure that was the first time I was ever excited for an album, only to be let down by it once I finally heard it. So, do you remember the first time you had this experience of being underwhelmed by an album you were looking forward to? Uh, And some examples for him include uh, Codes and Keys, I Am Easy to Find, Year of the Black Rainbow by Coheed and Cambria and In the League with Dragons by Mountain Goats. Okay. This is a great this is a great question. He's asking us like the first time we were ever disappointed by an album. I, yeah. I guess for you and I, it would be the era of going to the record shop, you get the CD, you peel off the uh, the cellophane. Yeah. You put the wall guaranteed uh, buyback sticker on it. You uh, throw it in your car stereo and you're listening to it and you're like, oh shit. This isn't this isn't <laughs> what I was hoping for. Um, what's the album for you? Do you have a, do you have a memory of being disappointed? Yeah. I mean, I love this question because it's like, it, it like, it, it's not just like a question about music. It's like kind of like a cheaper than therapy sort of question of like, what taught you about disappointment? And, you know, I think that they're, what Ben's getting at is like, not so much like, oh, I bought ugly kid Joe's America's least wanted and not every song was as good as like neighbor, but it's more like what was an album that kind of an end of the innocence. And for me, it wasn't like something that I bought. I'm like, oh, this isn't particularly good. Or, you know, for me, it was um, Guns N' Roses weren't like a definitive band for me early on. Like they were kind of a tier below Smashing Pumpkins or Pearl Jam. But like, you know, if I watch MTV or the radio, they're a band that mattered a lot. And uh, I feel like if, we, if we sent out like a survey to our 40 plus listeners, I think half of them would probably say the spaghetti incident because not just yeah. because it's like a terrible album with like a half-ass cover and it was like a covers album. But this is kind of what introduced me to uh, concepts of contractual obligation right? or that like a band can put out music they have absolutely no interest in pushing or like justifying in any sort of way. And I, I, this was what, 94? Like, yeah. I didn't have $18. Yeah, like, I don't know what, I don't know how much, like, you know, leaves I had to rake or lawns I had to mow to make that, to to buy that shit. Yeah. I mean, that, that that's the album that came to mind immediately for me, too, was The Spaghetti wow. Incident, 94, coming after Usual Illusion 1 and 2. Uh, it really is like one of the most half assed albums <laughs> ever. Certainly to come after you know, like these epics that were huge hits and not even trying to follow it up in yeah. like a real kind of way, just putting out this covers record. And then 
that was their last record for 15 years. And then they did uh, Chinese Democracy that finally came out. I think that was 08 or 09. That was 2008. So a long gap after the spaghetti incident. Yeah, I think I think actually there's a fair number of people that would also say, it, talking about Guns N' Roses, they might also say the Use Your Illusion albums would Ooh. maybe count as disappointments. I know for me, I don't think I've ever looked forward to an album more than those albums like as a young man you know 13 14 years old there was so much hype for those records i remember you could be mine did you sleep outside the records no i mean i was was too young for that i mean i was still i mean i was still at the age like where i had to like talk my mom into driving me to best buy to to get a (laughs) actually i bought the cassette i didn't even get the cd I don't think I had a CD player yet. Uh, when, Ooh, that that is not an album that you want to have and not have like a skip option. Yeah, it was. But you know, the, I was thinking about this that my relationship with albums was so different than as a kid in the '90s that I don't think I let myself be disappointed by albums. No, like and these are albums that I love. I think and I think that they're legitimately good. But like a record like "Be Here Now" or like "Smashing Pumpkins <laughs> Adore," you know, like albums that I think for a lot of people were disappointments after, you know, these big hit classic records, you know, as you said, like I spent so much money on those albums that I was going to like them no matter what I I was going to commit myself to liking them. And they were also the only albums I, you know, the new records that I had at that time, like you buy a CD, that's like your new album, at least for a week, if not longer. So you listen to it all the time. Even if you do feel disappointed, there is an element of Stockholm syndrome that that sets in, yeah. and you're like, I'm gonna love this album no matter what. So yeah, the beatings will continue until morale improves. That's like my experience with Be Here Now. Yeah, so there, you know, the, it's funny because like with Be Here Now and in the Use Your Illusion albums, I think I loved them when they came out. I went through a period then after that where I thought those albums weren't any good, and then I came back around and I was like, no, I love those albums. So like now yeah. I love them again, but I think. There was a time where I did think that they were disappointing, and then I just came around to them later. So I don't know. It's a convoluted answer to your question, yeah, but Ben. It's perfect for like the meat of this episode, particularly with the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Yes, I mean, and I I love that you referenced that Red Hot Chili Peppers piece, and that yeah. you agreed with me that you did, that Stadium Arcadium is their worst record because I got a lot of blowback for that. A lot of people, a lot of Stadium Arcadium defenders. <laughs> out there the fact that we're talking about like albums that are sh- extremely fucking long and like yet you love them because uh you invested so much in it i mean these people i guarantee you that they were 13 or 14 years old right they bought stadium arcadium on cd because people i think still kind of sort of did that in 2006 and yeah we we just have different gradients of red hot chili peppers fans because i think that when you released your piece um, a lot of people were talking about like how almost to a man that they got into them at 13 or 14 years old. Exactly. And I think the thing I realized in the response to my list, and by the way, you could see this on uprocks.com. I, I did, I wrote almost 6,000 words on the discography yeah. of the Red Hot Chili Peppers and I walked through each album. And um, the thing that really came through with the Red Hot Chili Peppers is that the album, like if you like that band, the albums that came out from when you were 11 to 16 are the ones you like the most. And for millennials, it's Californication to Stadium Arcadium. For me, and I'm guessing you, it's like Mother's Milk to One Hot Minute. And those were my top three albums. I had Blood Sugar, Sex Magic at number one, 
Mother's Milk number two, One Hot Minute number three. There, and there are a lot of people who are like, how are you putting One Hot Minute in your top three? And I'm like, have you heard Warped? Have you heard what Dave oh. Navarro does on that song? It's Sick. like, that's like, you know, cost of admission right there. I'll, uh, I, and also it's, um, it's too long. Because I think every Chili Peppers album is too long, other than maybe, like, I think Mother's Milk is actually, like, a perfect length. But even, like, Blood Sugar Sex Magic is too long. But, like, yeah. Stadium Arcadium is, like, way, way too fucking long. I mean... It is, I think it's the long, like, the longest double album I've... Like, it's not even, like, the, you know, like, Melancholy, where you get, like, the filler, like, the obvious filler. Like, it's, like, 28 songs that are almost exactly the same. Yeah, and, like, Melancholy... That first disc. It's way fucking better, but. <laughs> the first disc of Melancholy, I think, is pretty much perfect. I mean, there might be like one or two songs that are okay, but I think the uh, second disc is spottier, but the first <laughs> disc is perfect. But anyway, not to get distracted talking about the pumpkins. Um, yes. We should say we're talking about the Red Hot Chili Peppers because they have a new album out today. It's called Unlimited Love. It's their mm-hmm. first album in six years, and it's their first album with guitarist John Frusciante since Stadium Arcadium in 2006. So, a momentous Chili Peppers release. By the way, can I say this is the sleaziest meat that we've ever had in an episode? We're talking about the Chili Peppers and Machine Gun Kelly. So, like I said, I wrote 6,000 words expounding on the Chili Peppers. I'm curious, like, what's your take on them in 2022 in terms of their history and, and your feelings about this record? Yeah, I, I, I just want to point out before we go any further, I'm like looking at like the, I looked at the all music guide, like album themes tab for Mother's Milk and it was cool and cocky, guys night out, partying, freedom, TGIF. And then if you look at like uh, the getaway, it's like relationships, breakups, uh, and so forth. But yeah, um, look. That's a great, uh, that kind of sums it up perfectly, I think. Exactly. So, I mean, with the Red Hot Chili Peppers, yes, I was 13 years old in 1993. So, Blood Sugar Sex Magic was a big album. And, um, you know, I've gone through like waves with this band because I loved Chili Peppers as many of my friends did in like middle school. One Hot Minute came out. Like, I don't know. I thought that album was like really badass when I first heard it. And then I grew up to learn that, oh, Dave Navarro actually kind of sucks. And, uh, you know, this album's like a, you know, it's like a whack-ass Jane's Addiction record. But for me, like, and then Californication came out and like, it was so fucking unavoidable. Like I worked at a Ben and Jerry's where we played the rock radio station. Like it was like nonstop kryptonite and Californication singles. So I'm like, whatever. Um, I liked a few songs on By The Way. I liked Stadium Arcadium enough to like give it a C minus at Stylist Magazine. You're too generous, <laughs> too generous. Yeah, I know. I mean, Danny and, California. I mean, come on, Stadium Arcadium. Are you gonna are you gonna justify Danny that song? California? Might be one of the worst songs. Like, I can't believe we didn't bring that up in the episode. That's where we a terrible the song. Worst song. Or or Snow. Yeah. That song Snow. Heyo. Oh. I don't remember. Like you have a you have a real bone to pick with that song. I don't remember it being that bad. It's awful. Okay, I'll have to. I'll it's have to so check bad. It out again. It's like but, it's like the one instance where the Chili Peppers are worse than Sublime. Like they're trying to write like a Sublime <laughs> song and. It, uh, they just fail at it. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. Like, I live in California. I don't think that's made me any more amenable to liking this band than uh, someone who lives in Minnesota. But I think with the Rad Chili Peppers, they're at a point where it's like you're when you talk about 
an, a new album of them. Like you're not really talking about the new album. Like you're just talking about like the legacy of them. And you know, every since they make records only like four, five, six years, you can get to have the same conversations all over again about are they actually underrated? Eh, maybe they're overrated because I I think like with the mailbag question, I've swung from being. In the like in the moment, I'm definitely like, yeah, this band kind of sucks. But like when they're not making music, I'm thinking, eh, let's this would be kind of fun to defend them. You know, it's like they they worked with Gang of Four and George Clinton, and they actually made a good Stevie Wonder cover. Maybe they're like low key more influential and like quote unquote indie than some other bands. But uh, the the prospect of sitting down to listen to a Red Hot Chili Peppers song. Or an album, particularly one that's like 75 minutes. Like, I have barely enough time to listen to music I actually like these days. I just, I am so profoundly impressed that you revisited like <laughs> 12 Red Hot Chili. Like, I know you've like ranked Neil Young and um, uh, Bob Dylan albums. And it feels like even if they've released 50 albums, there's like just more Red Hot Chili Peppers music out there. Yeah, I, yeah, because you're right. Every album, especially you know, post Blood Sugar Sex Magic, it's so fucking long. Yeah, there's no quality control. They're just throwing. It seems like every song that they wrote during the period. Although I, I do know that um, there was this album that they were working on with Josh Klinghoffer, like when Klinghoffer got fired, and I, supposedly they had like dozens of songs written for that project i like the idea of josh klinghoffer putting that on his linkedin page like red hot chili peppers that'd be pretty awesome what what happened with that you know i mean this new album i have to say i was slightly disappointed by it which seems insane to say because i don't i don't know i didn't know you could i don't know you could be disappointed by a red hot chili yeah i I don't know like what the expectations are for a red hot chili peppers record in 2022 i mean this kind of feels like okay they're in their like bridges to babylon era where they're putting out a record so that they can say that they're still a active creative band but it's really about the stadium tour that they're going to do this summer which by the way not to you know no pun intended uh but i would go see the stadium tour it seems like that would probably be a pretty fun show especially like if the strokes were opening and i mean there's like yeah they got some good openers they have like some crazy they they got heim they've got like anderson pock i'm trying to think of who else it's like a long list isn't saint vincent saint vincent is there um there's like a bunch of other and i don't think it's like on every show i think they're having a different opener on on each date it's not going to be like chili peppers thundercat i think is on thundercat that'd be a good one yeah saint vincent asap rocky uh, Beck, I believe, yeah. is. I saw last time I saw you too. Beck was the opener for that show too. Like Beck has just become the opener for Gen X rock bands who still play stadiums. Like that's Beck's new role, which is kind of an interesting development for him. But um, yeah, I mean, Californication really is the fulcrum of their career. Where yeah, I think their audience now knows very little about the albums that came before that. Certainly, like, the 80s albums seem to be totally, you know, like, in a black hole. Like, at least, again, judging by the reaction to um, my column, because, like, I actually had the 80s albums, like, in the top five. Like, Freaky Styly yeah. and Uplift, Mofo, Party Plan. Like, I think mm-hmm. Hello Slovak, their original guitarist, was actually, like, a pretty cool musician. And yeah. I think Freshante definitely took his style and then elaborated on it you know like Slovak never had the opportunity to do that because he died in 1988 um 
and then Frashante joined when he was 18 years old and was a student of him. But then it is uh, interesting to me, you know, because I think the Chili Peppers are still regarded as like a funk rock band. But if you look at yeah. their biggest hits, they've really de-emphasized that side of, of their personality. I mean, like they, they really became known post-Californication for these cautionary ballads about you know, being Anthony Kiedis. Yeah, being Anthony Kiedis, basically, like you know, uh, you know, doing sowing, reaping, yeah, uh, doing so drugs like on the dark side of Los Angeles. I mean, that's become their big theme. Um, and I think on the new record, you know, it's it's a very mid tempo record. There's like a lot of there's even like a piano ballad. Yeah, at one point, a which, single, yeah, which is crazy uh, that you would have that. That's actually the best of the singles. I mean, that that tells you something. It seems like I mean. Because again, I think when you think of the Chili Peppers, you think about Flea first. He's probably the most famous guy in the band, but it really feels like the, they're really driven by the guitar players historically. Like whoever is playing guitar in the Chili Peppers really sets the tone. I was actually thinking this morning that there's like an analogy to be made to Fleetwood Mac and the Red Hat Chili Peppers because okay, you have Peter Green in their early years where they're more of a blues band. Then you have like Bob Welsh where they're this kind of sleepy soft rock band. And then Lindsey Buckingham comes in as a guitar player, and then they kind of go into the stratosphere, Lindsey Buckingham being the John Frusciante of of Fleetwood Mac. But you know what I mean? Because I feel like what Frusciante is doing Mm -hmm. is really what defines them publicly even more than Flea at this point. Like those minor key... Even more than Anthony Kiedis? (laughs) Well, Kiedis too, but I mean, Kiedis is like a whole other story, but... Yeah, I I guess he's like a constant, you know? I just mean like in terms of the music... Oh, okay. um, where it's not really about the funky influences. It's more about these sort of minor key variations on Little Wing that yeah. <laughs> Frashante could just endlessly conjure you know, in his career. Um, that is what really drives him forward. So I don't know. Like on this record, I, I there's just not that one or, or two, like those one or two undeniable singles that kind of power a record like Stadium Arcadium or By The Way made those albums so big in, in spite of like having all these other songs that maybe aren't as yeah. well known. This just kind of has like all of the filler and none of the like kind of standout tracks that those records have. Yeah. I, I gotta, I have to bring this up as far as like filler. Cause I'm like scrolling through the Spotify of like Red Hot Chili Peppers to seeing like how much the, like how many of their deep cuts get played by the way on the, on the Spotify version of stadium Arcadium, after 28 songs, there is a, I quote, audio commentary for Stadium Arcadium short version that is 29 minutes. Do you know how many plays this has? Four and a half million. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that is as much evidence as possible as like Stadium Arcadium's long tail success. But, um, yeah, I mean, with this with this album, I think that the Red Hot Chili Peppers, despite the fact they make like 70 minute, like just ungodly long albums there – I mean, I know they made what hits back in the day. Like, I had that one. But I don't think they've made a greatest hits album since. And, like, I can think of very few bands that are better suited to a greatest hits album than the Wild Chili Peppers. I mean, like, the the discrepancy between, the like, the deep cuts and, like, the singles is just... Uh, it, for few bands, is it that high? And, you know, I'm just... I mean, do you remember uh, Happiness Loves Company, especially in Michigan, uh, on Mercury? Like, I'm just reading off deep cuts from their previous albums, which you listened to. I mean, does... Oh, yeah. I can... I mean, well, those are all from Stadium Arcadium. So, I mean, that... 
I mean, you could at some point just start reading fake song titles, <laughs> yeah. and I would probably buy it. There is a Chili Peppers Greatest Hits record that came out in the early 2000s. Like, I think oh, probably really? came out after By the Way. But yeah, they could do another one, and that does seem like a good format for them. Yeah, I mean, they really became like a big radio band. I mean, and that was Californication yeah, again. Yeah, like an institution. Which... I would have ranked that album higher on my list, but it sounds awful. Like, you know, like the loudness wars, like that whole thing. I worked at radio back then. Like everything sounds like complete shit. Yeah. If if not Californication, a hybrid theory is like maybe the definitive example of that. Well, I was reading about the loudness wars as I was doing my piece. And like, they talk about Californication and death magnetic, the Metallica record as being like two of the worst offenders, both produced by Rick Rubin, by the way. Yeah. Terrible producer, like at least in in recent years. Yeah. But it's like, you listen to blood sugar, sex magic. That album sounds great. Oh, it sounds awesome. And like those early night, like wildflowers, the Tom Petty record, the Johnny cash records, he (laughs) was good for a while. And then, I don't know what happened. Like by the end of the nineties, everything he's doing is super compressed. Yeah. Uh, just sounds like a, a rusty shovel going over gravel, you know, it just, yeah. it's so like just garbled and crunchy yeah. and distorted. It, it makes you feel, uh, it makes you feel as if like you actually did download this off like <laughs> right. or something like that. Right. Well, let's, Talk about Machine Gun Kelly here. and Which is like kind of a lineage of Chili Peppers. I was like, say, I feel like there's a linkage between the two. I could see that. I could see that yeah. for sure. And we're talking about this because I feel like we have to. We've, we've, we've talked about Machine Gun <laughs> Kelly in the past. I think we promised to talk about this record. I mean, with, yeah. with the Chili Peppers, we're really straining the indie part of our indie cast title. Machine Gun Kelly, we might be totally obliterating it. Uh, but this is a big rock record. This came out last Friday. We're talking about it now because we did not get advances of this album. We're listening to it in real time, just like all you. Uh, It's called Mainstream Sellout. It's the follow-up to the big hit album, Tickets to My Downfall from 2020. This is a situation where I wonder if my low expectations are causing me to be too kind to this album. Because... Whenever it's on, I don't mind Machine Gun Kelly. He does not bother me in the same way that he seems to bother some people, you know, that I read online. I mean, I I tend to laugh when I see older millennials who I've seen defend, you know, Blink-182 or Avril Lavigne or, or even Good Charlotte. And then they get really huffy about Machine Gun Kelly. And I'm like, do you someone think of the integrity of pop punk? I know. It's like, do you not see that this is the same thing? This is the modern equivalent of that. And maybe there's some doubt about his sincerity because he used to be a rapper and now he's doing pop punk. And maybe you feel like, oh, he's just jumping on a bandwagon here. Um, But I don't know. What do you think of this record? Like a song like Emo Girl, for instance. I can't be yeah. mad at that song. I, I'm not putting that on for pleasure, really. But it, when it's yeah. on, it's fine. It's fine for what it is. And, you know, I wrote this series many years ago for Grantland. It was called The Winner's History of Rock and Roll. And I wrote about the seven most popular bands of the, like, their respective eras, like Bon Jovi. I wrote about yes. Linkin Park, uh, Kiss, uh, bands like that. And Aerosmith. Right. I did a piece on Aerosmith. Um and the thesis of that piece was um, you need these big, dumb rock bands to act as gateways for younger 
fans to hopefully get into more obscure rock music. And like, if I were to write that piece today, I would write about Machine Gun Kelly for 2022 because I think that's what he's doing. So that would be my defense of him. I think that you know, eleven-year-olds are not going to be listening to Soul, Soul Glow necessarily. You know, they may they may listen to Machine Gun Kelly, and then they're and then get into punk, and then they'll eventually get to that stuff. Yeah, Machine Gun Kelly is the uh, entry point to obscure pop punk acts such as Blink One Eighty Two, right? And uh, Good Charlotte. But I mean, yeah, I, I think you're coming to a point where it's like, how can you possibly be mad? Like. How could you possibly be mad at Machine Gun Kelly? I mean, like, when you think about, like, everything that is just, like, irritating and about, like, music discourse and so forth. Like, Machine Gun Kelly kind of exists just so outside of it um, that it, 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 it feels like when people do kind of clown on him, he's, like, kind of a, a substitute for the thing that, like, they actually are mad about. He's just, like, a safe place to project you know, whatever, whatever pisses you off, which, you know, I think leads to that album cover that I, it looks like he's changed that album cover. The one where he's getting like neon tomatoes thrown at yeah. him. Um, which by the way, but, is he really a sellout? I don't feel like that's something he's accused of. I don't think well, it's not no. like, it's not like he had integrity and then, you know, made this kind of music. He's never really had integrity as far as I know. No. He's more of like a bandwagon jumper. I feel like that would be the thing you would accuse him of yeah. if you wanted to. The thing about like the bandwagon jumping thing is I think he kind of created his own bandwagon because right. like tickets to my downfall, like now granted I have like a very distorted view of time and space nowadays, but I think we've said this before on on this show where Tickets to My Downfall is like one of the most important records to be released in the pandemic era. Like I don't remember a lot about like trends from 2019 to 2020, but I definitely know that like Travis Barker didn't seem as on the present as he does now. I know that Willow Smith didn't make a pop punk album before this. I know Olivia Rodrigo wasn't around before this. Um, and yeah, Tickets to My Downfall, like, really was prescient in terms of, like, anticipating pop punk being thrust in as, like, a very major note of pop music. And I don't know, like, why him, you know, like, I don't know what about that album really resonated with people. But, like, you mentioned, like, 11-year-old kids. Like, are 11-year-olds listening to Machine Gun Kelly? Because, I mean, I think his concepts of, like, what is, um, I guess, you know, trolly or uh, antagonistic to parents are like kind of based on very older ideas, you know? I don't, I mean, like, I honestly have no idea. I guess I'm just speculating that based on what I perceive a pop music listener to be. Um, okay. And I mean, do you think older people are listening to this? I don't know. I, I mean, somebody clearly is, but um, you think like like older like, rock guys are like you know people that would have liked Buck Cherry ten years ago, and now they're looking God. at Machine Gun Kelly as the new standard bearer. Is that the audience? If Machine Gun Kelly had songs as good as Lit Up and like uh, to the movie for the movies, man, like this episode would have taken a far different tack. That shit. I mean, do you really think that like rebellion though as a concept has changed over time? I feel like it's still pretty constant in terms of like what gets teenagers going i don't know if it's any different now than it was uh in the 90s or in the 70s i mean that's like why there still is punk music at all because yeah. people still look at you know having a lot of tattoos and earrings and loud guitars as being a signifier of you know striking against 
the man or whatever. You know, like that stuff wouldn't exist if that didn't still have some sort of power as like an archetype of rebellion, right? Yeah, I, I mean, it has some, but like, I mean, a part of me thinks that, uh, like, I remember, yeah, this stuff would have really, uh, like, yeah, I'm going to listen to this to piss off my parents and, you know, had it come out in 1995, which it very well could have. But, you know, with the <laughs> with the internet being what it is, like, I just wonder if, like, this kind of rebellion, this sort of, like, punk idealism, like, seems almost kind of, like, uh, ancient to a 15-year-old right now. I don't know. Maybe I should. Maybe we just need to have like a guest that like where we find like fifteen year olds just like talk about these things rather than us kind of guessing about. I mean, them. you still see. I you know you go to a mall, or whatever. I I feel like I still see kids who dress like the way my friends dressed when I was a mm. kid. You know, like if you gravitate to this kind of music, there is a sort of traditional archetype. That hasn't changed that dramatically, yeah. you know. And if you are a person who finds this kind of thing corny, well, then you're not going to listen to this kind of music. Maybe you're listening to 100 Gex or whatever. Uh, but clearly, there are people who this resonates with, you know. And yeah. you could have a song like "Emo Girl," and <laughs> it bad it it means something to them. So I, yeah. I I think the proof is in the pudding. The fact that this that you can make this kind of music and have it make it. An impact on the pop market. Mm. It just speaks to how some archetypes are timeless. You know, they just yeah. still work, even if you think that they shouldn't work. D- is is Machine Gun Kelly like? Have we reached peak Machine Gun Kelly, or are we looking at like? Because I, I mean, I think with with um, you know the Riot Fest booking, or no, the Lollapalooza booking, people were kind of wondering: is like, okay, is this like is Machine Gun Kelly? like actually like on his downfall or is he still on an upward swing? Uh, Like, I don't know, like in 2024, is Machine Gun Kelly going to be bigger than he is now? Like, I feel in some ways this is maybe like the, his like, uh, you know, his version of antics, if you will. I don't know. I wonder if he could be like a softer version of Kid Rock, like where he makes a rock record and then he can make he is more definitely of definitely like going country at some point. Exactly. He's going to do like a Sheryl Crow uh, <laughs> duet at some point. And, but then he can kind of go back to hip hop. Like he's, he doesn't have to have fidelity to any one genre. I mean, I think that's an advantage for him. Yeah. I mean, even on this record, uh, mainstream sellout, there's like a little Wayne song. There's yeah. like two, right? Is there two? Okay. <laughs> I think so. Um, I actually like the Little Wayne song. Yeah, I didn't like, mind it. Little Wayne was an innovator in like bad pop punk slash rap with uh, Rebirth, you know, like that that era when like Lil Wayne stopped one of the best runs in rap history because he wanted to skateboard. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, Lil, uh, you know, like, again, this record, uh, Mainstream Sellout, when it's on, I don't mind it. I, I will yeah. not listen to this for pleasure because I feel <laughs> way too old to be listening to this. Um, but again, I, I do think there's a place for a record like this. I do think that he probably appeals to like a young audience. And I think some of those people will grow up to be music writers and they're going to write think pieces for pitchfork in 2032 about how tickets to my downfall, you know, was a defining record of their youth. And it's going to get like a 9.5 on the pitchfork review. I, I, I believe the children of the future. Yep. That's going to happen. <laughs> Now reach the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? 
Yeah, so uh, today, a album by a band called Pup comes out. I know that if you're an IndieCast listener, you're, you're there's like a very good chance you're into this band. And also, um, there's a piece up on The Ringer uh, that published on Thursday where I interviewed the band. It's one of many, many, many interviews with this band that are coming out, which, you know, good for them. Pup's a band that's really grinded it out over the past decade, like played a billion shows and gotten you know pretty big organically and now they're playing Coachella and their font is bigger than that of Emo Night which is the biggest (laughs) sign of success for a rock band but um their new album The Unraveling of Pup the Band is out uh is produced by Peter Cadis who is like a indie cast legend he does the National Interpol Gang of Youths he did the Japan Droids album where they started to play with synths and uh you know love songs and um you know like every Pup record that comes out like I think to myself, like, is this it for me with this band? Like, have I gotten my fill of Pup? I don't know. And then they come out with a record that at first I'm like, eh, is it more of the same? But at the end, it ends up being like, oh, yeah, they've somehow extended their run. I like this album. They continue to do interesting things. So um, I'm I'm really stoked that, uh, you know, I'm really stoked about this album. Like, they somehow managed to be Pup, but do so in just a slightly different way that gets me interested in them all over again. It's sort of like Beach House in that regard. Um, so yeah, if you want a Pup album that sort of reminds you of Beach House, which, (laughs) as we said in that previous episode, according to Apple Music, Beach House sort of reminds you of ACDC, then The Unraveling of Pup the Band. It hasn't really made me love it the way I love Dreamers Over or, or Morbid Stuff. Um, but I'm hoping I get there. It's definitely them branching out sonically in a way that they haven't before. So kudos to them for, um, making a new kind of pup record. Um, I want to recommend, uh, one of my own things this week. I I did an interview with Brian Fallon of the Gaslight Anthem, uh, that is publishing Mm -hmm. on Friday. Uh, we haven't talked about this yet in our episode, but the Gaslight Anthem announced that they are returning to full-time status as a band. Uh, They're going to be going on tour this fall, and they're also going to be putting out a new record. Uh, And I talked about that with Brian. They're still in the early stages of that. Uh, He's writing songs. He's hoping to get into the studio later this year get something out by 2023 but uh, i always like talking to brian he's always a very candid interview and just talking about his own concerns about now being a guy in his 40s you know it, at one point he was talking about like you know am i gonna look silly jumping around with a rock and roll band at this age uh but i'm personally excited to see what they do I, i've enjoyed brian solo records uh, and I'm a big Gaslight Anthem fan. I was listening to the 59 Sound this morning. Uh, it's classic. Such a great record. And uh, I'm excited to hear Brian write rock and roll songs again. He's had this Americana period that, again, I think he's put out some good music. Uh, but I just love hearing him write rousing rock songs. And so I'm curious mm-hmm. to hear how that develops. Uh, so, yeah, check out my story on Up Rocks, uh, my interview with Brian talking about the Gaslight Anthem reunion. Um, that about does it for this episode of IndieCast. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. 